Hi, this is Peter Francho, your state comptroller in Maryland. You're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you today? Doing great. How are you going? Doing very well. Thank you very much. Today on the podcast, we are going to talk about the latest estimates from the Board of Revenue Estimates, who voted this week uh, to write up revenue projections for the state of Maryland. We'll get into that. We'll also talk about the 2020 census, why it matters so much to counties, and what we can do to prepare. And then we will get into the listener mailbag, Michael. I'm very excited for that. We have some uh, some great questions today that we will attempt to answer. The, the teeming millions want to know from the Conduit Street podcast. That's right. Exciting, exciting. All right, Michael. So let's start today. I, I want to get into a little bit. You attended an event last night for Delegate Sheila Hickson. She is a delegate from District 20 in Montgomery County. She's been a member of the House of Delegates since 1976. She's been in a leadership position in the Ways and Means Committee uh, since 1993, and she was the first woman to serve in that position. And Michael, you actually worked for her. Uh, we'll say way back when, but um, back, yeah. but how was that last night? No, it was, it was a, a wonderful event, and. Uh, the number of people who received an invitation to come to an event to just sort of, you know, raise a glass for Sheila Hickson um, came from all corners of the state and even from out of state. Folks are like, I'm, I'm drop everything. Where do I show up? It was it was wonderful. Uh, I, I was lucky enough. I was uh, professional staff to the Ways and Means Committee when she first became chair of the committee back in 1993. Mm-hmm. So that dates me a little bit, but uh, I was a young pup at the time. Uh, nonetheless, um, so you know, she and I have wonderful memories from working together in the legislature back in the '90s and tackling tough issues and that sort of stuff. But just all the people who served in the committee and as as fiscal note writers and as bill drafters, professional staff, and so forth, uh, and all the support staff for the committee, uh, like the amount of love in the room for Sheila Hickson was overwhelming. I think it was really moving for her and. It it was a terrific connecting event for all the people who have been in and around her. Yeah, so I'm sure all the people who have worked for her over the years have gone in different directions, yep. and to get everybody back together must have been quite an event. And I guess we should mention she is retiring this year, and that's why you yeah. know part of the reason why you had this event. So not running for re-election, and and she's you know she's in good spirits, and and I think you know we gave her a really nice time. It was it was a really nice event. Everybody's happy. That sounds great. She'll be sorely missed, but I know she's in great spirits, and uh, she'll be around in some capacity. I'm sure. No doubt. All right, Michael. So let's get into our first topic today, revenue estimates. So we mentioned earlier the Board of Revenue Estimates wrote up the estimates for 2019 in Maryland. Just reading the headlines here, we closed out last year with a $500 million surplus. I'm reading today that they wrote up the estimates by 325 for 2019. It seems like Maryland's sitting pretty here, but what should we be looking for and what's really going on? What, what should we 
take away from this? Yeah, I think I, I think this is worth going a little bit below the headlines because there's some moving parts here that I think are a little bit interesting. Some of this is going to come together in more detail next month when the Spending Affordability Committee sits down for the first time and gets their sort of big picture briefing on what's going on with fiscal issues affecting Maryland. So, you know, we've we've been in the business of circling dates on the calendar. Well, the first meeting of spend afford, spending affordability is usually our first clear picture of where we are. But this meeting of the Bureau of Revenue Estimates, this is the, the group of official forecasters for our revenues. They meet every September. This is a regularly scheduled meeting. And they had some optimism in their forecasts in the report that just came out yesterday. Yeah, so we saw some numbers. We also saw a narrative from the comptroller, Michael. As you mentioned, this is one of their regularly scheduled meetings. They meet three times a year to revise these estimates. But, Michael, what can we take away from the comptroller's narrative here, you know, going a bit deeper, like you mentioned, and not just looking at the headline, which is the numbers? Well, first of all, revenues being written up from the point of view of the, you know, thinking about the state's budget and the state's bottom line, this is good news. So uh, the ability to, to affect the various priorities the state has and to afford the things we've made commitments to, it's good news to have revenues exceed estimates. Uh, this, this write up in particular looks like there's more to it than just good economic news. Typically in September and December and March, when this body gets together and comes up with their forecasts, typically they're just looking at economic activity and they're saying, you know, the, the sales tax receipts look a little bit shaky or here's what's happening with income tax withholding and we should make these adjustments accordingly. Uh, in this case, I think there's more to it. Um, and and part of it, as you said, is is a little bit telegraphed in the comments from the comptroller himself. So, Michael, we know that we've talked a lot about federal tax reform here on the podcast. I think we've mentioned before that the state was very conservative in their estimates about how that tax reform would affect Maryland. But as part of the narrative here from the comptroller, looking like maybe the state knows now that it's going to see a spike in revenue due to federal tax reform. So, so income taxes are the the biggest piece of this puzzle. If we look at state revenues uh, for the general fund, it's about $18 billion of revenues. $10 billion of that, or more or less, comes from the personal income tax. So that's definitely the, you know, the biggest piece of the whole puzzle. About another $5 billion is sales tax. Then you're down to corporate income taxes, maybe a billion. Lottery is half a billion. And everything else is basically just a rounding error. I mean, you know, if you're, you have volatility and things like alcohol taxes or, or tobacco taxes and whatnot, that those don't really move the needle in the bottom line. But if you have $300 million of change, it's mostly coming from income and sales tax. So on income tax, the comptroller specifically mentioned the effects of federal income tax reform. So we know the state built in some degree of a bump up in income taxes, personal income taxes, as a result of that. This seems to suggest that they may have undershot that number. And maybe they did that on purpose, right? They wanted to be conservative. They didn't know exactly how this would affect Maryland. But as you said, now it seems like they might have a better yeah. picture. So, there, I mean, there is a kind of an interesting political philosophy question embedded there. Is it better to be conservative on your revenues and have good news later or to be aggressive with revenues and then have to tighten the belt in the middle of the year? It's really tough to fix the budget year you're in when you're halfway deep and then you find out you've got a problem. That's double tough to do. Um, I, I 
I don't know what the right answer is. I'm not, I'm, there's more art than science maybe in, in, in managing that. But to the extent with a lot of uncertainty, maybe we hedge the bet a little bit. And if the comptroller says that the response to federal in, income tax reform is part of what's driving what's happening with income taxes here, you have to think that they're seeing – estimated returns by people who who are getting non-wage income and withholding from those of us who are wage income types they're seeing something in their in, in their returns so far suggesting the numbers may be better than we had guessed so fr- from the government's perspective from the state coffers perspective and this presumably counts for counties too um, we may be ahead of our guesses so good news there And Michael, part of his narrative, too, had to do with the Wayfair case. We've talked about that here on the podcast. That has to do with online sales tax, the ability for states to collect sales tax from vendors who are not in the state. They reside outside of the state. What did he talk about there? So um, the the narrative didn't say very much, but it did make mention of the Supreme Court decision on sales taxes. So this has nominally opened the door for Maryland and other states to collect our own state sales tax on L.L. Bean or Dell Computers or other places that are selling in Maryland without a physical presence here. Mm-hmm. And as far as as far as I know, it's still an unanswered question whether it would take uh, the General Assembly changing the law or whether simply an administrative action of the comptroller could get that started. Right. Um, I'm I'm prepared to say, well, based on what I see in this report, I think the comptroller believes he has the authority to do it. The reason I say that is. He mentions the Wayfair decision in his narrative for this revenue write-up, and at the same time, they're writing up sales and sales and use tax revenues for FY19. That's only through this coming June, right. up by a hundred million dollars or so. So. Part of that might be the overall strength of the economy, and if there are more people working and more people earning wages, they tend to go out and buy refrigerators and coffee makers and other things like that. So that's the sort of thing that generates sales taxes. But for a $100 million write-up in sales tax and for him to mention Wayfair, my guess is he believes he can do regulations, he can send out directives and get the L.L. Beans of the world to start collecting and remitting sales tax this fiscal year. Right, because if he had to wait for the General Assembly, you wouldn't necessarily see that projection in 19. Right. You would you would expect that if the legislature had to pass a bill, it would have an effective date of June 1, July 1, October 1, you know, probably July 1st. It would be all that revenue would be in fiscal 20 at best. So my best guess is they think they can do this administratively. So we may see something forthcoming you know, from the from the comptroller on that front. Um, so those two numbers, a change in, in individual income taxes, that's about $177 million, And the change in sales taxes, $112 million. Just for the current fiscal year, FY19, that's almost all of the write-up. There are other odds and ends, you know, $5 million here, $10 million there. But basically, that's almost all the money is in those two. So whatever's left is presumably a function of the economy looks a tick stronger than what we were guessing previously. That probably means things like you know, unemployment's down, overall employment and number of, uh, you know, number of paychecks being withheld and so forth is a pretty good indicator of the strength of the Maryland economy. So the strength of the economy may be on the up and up. And Michael, I think it's interesting when we talk about 
the revenue write-up and the way that we look at it. What's the difference about how Maryland should look at these numbers versus maybe how the federal government looks at this in a 10-year cycle? You see various headlines, you know, is it over $700 million right. is the write-up? Is it over 325 What's the difference between how we look at it and the federal government? I, look? I, I think the easiest way to look at things at the state level is one year at a time. And the main reason for that is we have a balanced budget requirement. It's in the state constitution, like, like I think every single state requires we have a balanced budget. So we tend to think in one year increments at the state level. So I'm, I'm sure there are going to be media reports talking about this and they're going to see a bump of revenues for 19, for fiscal 19 of 325 million and then a bump in fiscal 20 of another 400. And they're going to say they've written up revenues by 700 and some, you know, $732 million. We're going to see that number as a headline. I think that's misleading. If we have, you know, if we have a budget of $18 billion, we're not seeing 700 million in one year's budget. Right. So, uh, the, the federal government tends to keep a 10-year scorecard for all sorts of things. That's what we saw as part of their as their reforms of what what was the effect on the deficit for you know for a 10-year uh, for for you know or the effect on the the federal debt for a 10-year effect. Um, we tend to think one year at a time. So I think the reasonable number here is either the current year 325 or the following year it's I think it's 407. Right. Either one of those is is fair, but it makes next year's budget a little bit easier to handle for the governor next year and for the legislature who's going to be seated after this election. Um, what was going to be a pretty big challenge will be a click or two lesser as a result of revenues looking stronger. And as you said, the Spending Affordability Committee will meet and we'll, we'll get some more information there, and that will obviously affect the budget, what the governor submits to the General Assembly. Michael, digging a little bit deeper here, in fiscal 2019, I know they've set some money aside, and, and we've also seen some money set aside in fiscal 20. What is going on in 19 and 20 where they've, they've already set money aside knowing that they're going to need it? Yeah, there's, there's a couple things here that um, that are just sort of almost footnotes in this report, but they, they indicate a couple policy things that have, that have been decided. One is for the current year, uh, the General Assembly already did a $200 million set aside with the notion that we think there's going to be a bump in income taxes. We know we've got some future spending coming for K-12 education. Let's set some of this money aside, not have it just go into the rainy day fund or a generic catch-all, but um, we'll have some of this money set aside in a special, I think it's called the the Excellence in Education Fund. Right. So $200 million bucks is set in a special fund for use in a future year, basically anticipating we're going to pass a Kerwin bill, it's going to have a price tag, and let's have some money ready to help out with that. That's a sensible way to deal with the uncertainty in income taxes for this year. That wasn't made as a permanent thing. So that shows up and it kind of affects the bottom line for FY19 as far as the the grand total revenues that are available for the state. Then you have something different in FY20. Uh, there's a there's a separate item. There's a revenue volatility law that just got passed a few years ago. And the idea behind that is we know there's some quirkiness in income tax in particular. Usually it's a function of capital gains and other things that don't necessarily carry over year to year. Big year in the stock market, a bunch of people generate ta- capital gains, cash them out and pay income taxes on them. That's not the same 
in reliability terms as a person who has a job right. and probably has the same job the following year. So we passed a law a few years ago saying when we think there's an unusual bump up in revenues for reasons like that, we should take some of that money and set it aside sort of for a rainy day beyond just the old, the conventional let's keep 5% of revenues aside in a, in a revenue stabilization fund. So this year shapes up there the forecast here is that we'll put 90 million or so in that in that uh, set aside fund because of volatility. So this will be the first year where we test the discipline of the policymakers in Annapolis that came up with a multi-year plan saying when times look a little too good to be true, let's not spend every penny of it. So so uh, on the current forecast, we got $93 million being set aside unspendable. We'll see how it works out. It sounds like good fiscal stewardship, but you're right. It will test the discipline of the General Assembly to see if they follow through on their plan to set some money aside. Right. And, and especially if the first draft of this year's budget makes it, boy, it's going to be difficult to give salary increases for state employees, or we want to do something on the the uh, opioid epidemic, but we just don't have the cash for it, or we have a problem with a, we need more correctional officers in various facilities, and things are unsafe. We want to spend money to do that. Suddenly, the idea of well, why do we have ninety million dollars being you know siphoned off onto an island for we might need it someday? Don't we need it for A, B, or C? Yeah, I mean, obviously the shiny object over there is <laughs> right. going to be staring them down, and yeah. they're going to see that money there. So we'll see. Uh, too early to tell there. But Michael, I also thought it was significant that the comptroller said. During his tenure, uh, you know, they have never voted on a revenue write-up of this magnitude. So I guess sense of optimism that Maryland is moving in the right direction, our economy is moving in the right direction here. But he also says, look, we can't take our eye off the ball. We need to be careful. Uh, let's not go overboard. So significant there that this is the biggest revenue write-up that he's mm-hmm. ever voted on. He's been around for a long time. Right. And I mean, we knew that this was the most uncertain year for income taxes that anybody's ever seen. So to some degree, maybe this is the early returns telling us Maryland was conservative in our guess for what was going to happen, particularly with the response to federal income tax reform. But, you know, with with that much uncertainty, hedging your bets a little bit, it's it's tough to you know to critique uh, that that approach to what to do with with, you know, with with shifting sands like that. All right, Michael, anything else to add here before we move on? Or I think we've covered this pretty well. Yeah, I think I think we'll see a clearer picture of how the revenue changes might affect what looks like the state's forecast for a structural deficit. And we were seeing that number getting close to a billion dollars awfully fast in the last in the last summary of that. That was back in April. So probably next month in October, spending affordability will sit down. My guess is you and I will end up doing our a deep dive podcast to sift through round one of spending affordability and what is it telling us. So be on the lookout for that. We'll certainly get to it. On that note, we'll go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we will talk about the U.S. Census for 2020, why it's so important for local governments, and we'll also open up the listener mailbag. All that and more after the break.
back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, let's talk about the 2020 census. It may be a few years away, but the federal government is obviously in preparation mode, and they're asking local governments to be in preparation mode uh, and, and reaching out to local governments and asking them to decide right now who's going to be the best person to deliver the message to communities that this is very important And, Michael, we know that an accurate census count, or a lack thereof, has a lasting effect on counties, particularly when it comes to the distribution of federal funds. Right. The the federal government counts on the census, and forgive the pun, but, but, I mean, they rely on the census to drive just lots and lots of different programs. So, you know, funding that's related to public health and housing and community development issues, just the, the list goes on and on. But they count on the numbers that are in the census to drive all sorts of population-driven funding and programs and attention and so forth. So, I mean, the, the bottom line is it's in everybody's interest to have as accurate and complete account of your residence as possible. Yeah, Michael, and I think it's also important to mention that it's not just the government, the federal government that relies on this data. It's also business and industry. I mean, they decide where they're going to locate new facilities, you know, where they're going to provide more services. They decide a lot of that based on census data. And if that census data is off, you may lose out on new job creation and economic growth. I mean, the reality is there's no private sector competitor that can measure up to what the census can understand about demographics and population. So, you know, there are a lot of places where the Googles and Amazons and Apples and so forth, the Facebooks of the world are generating information and that's valuable to private sector companies and, and you know people who are doing research and so forth but just as far as the nuts and bolts of who are we where do we live and what are our circumstances the census is it's the treasure trove it's the centerpiece kind of data for i mean we've seen this giant explosion of of big data and people using it wisely to in the private sector to do better you know to make more profit and find more customers for their services but also in the public sector we're seeing the same sort of thing everybody relies on good census information absolutely and you know we have complete count committees, which are volunteer committees established by local governments, state governments to, mm-hmm. you know, Im- make sure that people understand the importance of this, to raise awareness, to respond to the census. Um, and Michael, Congress, as we know, did not increase funding from the 2010 census. We'll be facing a tighter labor market in 2020. I think the state understood the importance of this. And MAKO supported a bill last year to establish the 2020 Census Grant Program. And essentially, that's a way to leverage state dollars in the form of matching grants to county governments to you know, increase these counts, get people involved. And we like that a lot, right, because the state is not saying – here's the money, this is how you have to implement your programs. They're giving us some flexibility here because, as we know, the best way to reach constituents in Garrett County may be different than Worcester County. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. I I, I was I was fortunate to testify in, in the Senate in favor of this bill. And, I mean, it got, it got a good reception because it really hit the nail on the head. One thing everybody understands is – everybody in Maryland lives in a county, including Baltimore City. Um, So it's the county governments who have the universal reach across the state. So counties being the ones who might judge in one jurisdiction, maybe the big approach is 
education of citizens so we get a higher return rate of the mailed census form. I mean, that's kind of the forgotten piece here right. is that we think of census takers as being human beings with clipboards walking around building to building and knocking on doors, talking to people. And that's that's part of the process, but that's sort of the back end of the process. The front end is getting people to know that something's coming in the mail, know what it is. It's not junk mail. It's something you should open. You should spend the 15 minutes to fill out the form, you know, and, and, and return it back. So, so those, those clipboard people later have fewer places that they have to go investigate person by person. Uh, so anyway, the, the idea of each county coming up with its own strategy and saying, for us, we want to approach this through our public health clinics because that's where we think the undercounted population has their best contact with public with the public sector. OK, that's a great idea here. But in another part of the state, it might be we need to work through our Department of Social Services or we need to partner with the MVA or there's all sorts of different ways to make these connections. It should vary different parts of the state and a grant program that that has each jurisdiction come up with their own plan. I think that's the best way to go about it. Yeah, we like that local flexibility. And, you know, this is, again, just increasing awareness. As Michael said, when you get that letter that, you know, from the census, you're not throwing it away as junk mail. You know what it is because you've already heard about this. You're anticipating that you're going to get uh, this request from the census, and it's important to fill it out, send it back, or you'll have, you know, somebody with a clipboard knocking on your door. And if that's the case, answer the door and, and talk to them, right? right? Because it's important. Right. And so, I mean, you know, this is this is a little bit like the whole conversation about how important it is for people to vote. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not necessarily, you know, because your one vote is going to decide the election, but in the collective, you know, people deciding to vote and participate in the process makes the process, you know, have more integrity and mean more and be more substantive. I think I think it's the same thing. You want a complete and thorough and accurate census, and we want that in every part of the state. So, I mean, some of this is a matter of of if Maryland does a better job getting a complete census count than Pennsylvania or Virginia, on a relative sense, this is us eating their lunch. Right. And vice versa. Mm-hmm. If we do a lousy job, then the jurisdictions who do a better job will eat our lunch. So, I mean, if you want to be possessive about it, this isn't really about parts of Maryland against other parts of Maryland. It's about you know under claiming our proper share of whatever the feds are going to be distributing back to the states. Very, very important. So we are happy to see, you know, that this that bill did pass. It's become law. Counties are putting together plans right now about how to increase awareness, how to reach out to constituents and get them to participate. And I think that's a great thing. My guess is probably by next summer. We do a conference every August. My guess is in the summer of 19, instead of being at a low simmer, uh, the preparations for the 2020 census will be up to a boil, and we'll probably do a couple of nuts and bolts sessions about what's your job as an elected official, what should your county government employees be doing, and what should you have with your social services agencies, your public health, all the all the parts of your county government that reach the public directly. Um, census will be a hot topic for the next couple of years in county government. Yeah, and as we said, we're preparing now. We also had sessions this year at mm-hmm. our conferences about the census and preparing. So this is a hot topic and it will continue to simmer as we get into next year. I think so. All right, Michael, let's open up the listener mailbag here. And before we do, I I do want to say that we're going to answer two questions today that we got during our live recording of our podcast at the Mako Summer Conference. Again, 
thank you to Congressman Dutch Ruppersberger. He was an excellent guest, and uh, yeah, he, you know he's the reason why we we got these questions from the in person audience. Right. So it was, a, it was a pretty fun exchange. I, I feel like maybe we need like a mailbag jingle. If this is going to be a ooh, thing, we need ooh, a jingle. You know, we so do need a I jingle. I will tuck that away. All right, I'll I'll, I'll work on that. I'll work on that. <laughs> Add it to the list. Okay. So Michael, the first question that we got here was. Why can't school boards donate unused food to local homeless shelters or nonprofits? Right. And then, I mean, pretty sensible question, right? I mean, this 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 conversation about anybody have questions for either the congressman or the two clowns who run the podcast, and it turned into, like, you know, stump the band almost. Right. So, okay, that's fine. So we did a little, little bit of digging into this, and we worked with our colleagues at the Maryland Association of Boards of Education because this is really more of a school system question, but it actually gets into some of the challenges that local governments face in general. Yeah, so in general, I think a lot of people think the reason why restaurants, schools don't donate food is because they're worried about liability. They're going to get sued if there's a food allergy or, or, or if, you know, during that transportation of the food, something went bad. However, in, in 96, the federal law changed. President Clinton signed a, a bill that essentially granted immunity for people who were trying to do the right thing for the private sector, you know, restaurants donating food to food banks or shelters, whatnot. So they do have some immunity there. So a good Samaritan sort of thing. We're we're familiar with that in in state law in a variety of cases. If you're trying to do the right thing, you shouldn't get sued if if there's an accident along the way. So some protection in the private sector. But again, this is federal law that seems to govern most of this stuff. Right. And and also in in federal law. So we had we had another bill in 2011. um, Congress basically said, look, if schools want to donate surplus food to local food banks or charitable organizations, we are not going to hold them accountable. They're not going to be liable if something goes bad. So just like in the private sector, the federal law pretty much exempted schools from any liability should they want to do that. Now, talking to our colleagues at MABE, the Maryland Association of Boards of Education, it's more complicated than it seems. Now, we do know that some schools are doing this. Right. However, uh, a lot there's a lot of concern from health officers about uh, donating food that's already been opened. So they prefer you to donate prepackaged foods, right? That, that's right. safer. But the problem is most schools are trying to get away from prepackaged foods. They, they're using, you know, they want more healthier options, right. fresh options. Right. So schools are, instead of necessarily donating those items, they are expanding in areas like composting. Right. And that helps a lot because we know that when all the food hits the landfill, you know, that creates noxious gases and it, and it, you know, it hurts the environment. But if you're composting, you know, they found more effective ways, new ways to make sure that food doesn't necessarily go to waste, even if they can't donate it to a shelter or a nonprofit. So there's logistical limits on on the ability to do this. And I mean, there's a lot of stuff that that you have sort of chain of command or chain of control issue, that that sort of thing. So, okay, um, sometimes it is too difficult to actually take, you know, the the half-used bin of green beans or whatever and get it to someplace while it's still hot. Yeah, uh, but but schools are doing their best to try and find the most sensible alternative in those circumstances. So so it sounds like you know they're doing their best. Uh, the federal laws seem to have been steered in the right direction to try and be you know try and not have absurd limits get in the way. Uh, but it's sometimes the best you can do is actually just find a composting alternative or something like that as opposed to a, an easy donation. So do what you can and then have a backup plan. Yeah, I think that's the takeaway. Schools are trying to do what they can to not waste food, and uh, they're moving in the right direction there with new ideas such as composting and, and trying to get as much food to the needy as they can. 
All right, Michael, the next question that we'll take on today, now we have to make sure that we preface this by saying we are two uh, white guys here in Annapolis that are going to attempt to answer this next question. I think we can, but I just want to make sure that people understand that. So the next question was, how can we get more women involved in politics? So, I mean, it's a big sort of global question that's beyond the reach of MAKO and so forth, but uh, there's actually a, a fair amount happening on this front in Maryland and even within the county government community. And I mean, one place to start is within our association, uh, there is a longstanding group uh, that styles themselves the, the Women of Mako. Uh, that's a chapter organization sort of under the umbrella of the Maryland Association of Counties. But this is a group that, that have the interest of promoting and advancing women in elected office. Uh, they meet during our conferences and sometimes have standalone events. Uh, honestly, sometimes we have the difficulty that the Women of Mako put together a program that's so attractive, they end up with a room that's half men mm-hmm. because the topic is genuinely interesting on beyond uh, on beyond just women elected officials. But uh, this is a group that is designed for this mission you know, in general. Yeah. So, I mean, they provide mentoring and support for their fellow colleagues, women in government. But I think it's also important to mention that they also want to make sure that younger women who are engaged in government and policy, that those women have a path to get to elected office should they choose to do so. So reaching down, finding people who are interested in government and making sure that they have the ability to kind of move up that ladder should they choose to do so. And one of the things that has been a focus of the women of MAKO in recent years has been not just mentoring among peers. I mean, one of one of the foundations of women of MAKO for years and years has been I'm a veteran woman county council member, and I want to help take a, a, a woman who's recently been elected, and now she's a county commissioner in the neighboring county. Mm-hmm. I'll sort of take her under my wing, and I'll serve as a mentor to her already in elected office. But I think increasingly, the group has been reaching out and saying, let's let's try and develop a network and a bench so that there can be more women who are involved in civic affairs back home, but get those women thinking about maybe I should run for office. Maybe that's a a fit for me, something I hadn't thought of before. So I think that's, you know, that's an effort that is uh, bottom up rather than top down. I I mean, without, without being blunt, uh, you know, Mako is an organization. We're here to serve the people who are in office. We don't do things like endorsing campaigns or, or fund anybody's campaign, that sort of thing. We don't, take positions on who ought to win. We're here to try and serve and assist and benefit the people who are in office. But uh, totally appropriate and right that there is a network like that of, of elected women who are thinking today, thinking tomorrow, and thinking down the road. Yeah, I think and counties are very fortunate to have a number of powerful and influential women across the state and county government. Mm-hmm. It's always a good thing. And as we look to the state government, I think, Michael, we can look there, too, and see that there are also a number of powerful and influential women, you know, in leadership positions in the General Assembly. Sure. And General Assembly, um, quite a lot of, of, of leaders. I mean, the president pro tem of the House of Delegates, Adrian Jones, also does the capital budget. I mean, she's among she's among the, the half dozen people you start to mention when you talk about who wields power in Annapolis. Um, she's got her finger on all sorts of different things. We've got committee chairs in both the House and Senate. Uh, Dolores Kelly is going to become the 
the chair of the Senate Finance Committee. So another another woman moving into a leadership job. Uh, Kathleen uh, Dumay. Yeah, it's going to be the majority leader of the the, the House of De- House delegates, uh, Democrats. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a couple. Uh, Committee chairs, uh, you know, cha- committees who are ch- uh, three three committees who are chaired by women. Right. So, so you know, this is this is no surprise. That's built into the fabric of the General Assembly leadership, and in both parties, uh, that's in the in the minority party. Uh, Kathy Schlega is a, a leader in the in the minority party in the House of Delegates. Mm-hmm. Look at the the treasurer, who is the representative of the General Assembly on the Board of Public Works, Nancy Cobb. So she she manages the, the finances uh, on behalf of the state, but also uh, serves on the Board of Public Works. Um, and and in the in the governor's cabinet, you have you have a number of cabinet secretaries. I just you know just read about the cabinet meeting uh, the governor and the cabinet held in Montgomery County. Uh, secretary Kramer, the secretary of the Department of Aging, um, you know she's she's a dynamic leader, and uh, governor called her a superstar. Mm-hmm. As 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 part of that uh, that visit to Montgomery County, uh, there's a, there's a number of, of women leaders in the uh, in in the governor's administration. It was Kelly well. Schultz too, sure, Department sure. of Labor and Licensing. Right. So I think yep. a number of you know dynamic, powerful women in leadership mm-hmm. in state government as well. Right. So, and I mean as you as you look toward the future, this isn't necessarily a, a Mako enterprise, but you can't help but notice an organization like Emerge Maryland uh, that has been trying uh, to build up the number of particularly young women who might seek elected office at one level or another and i think if you start reading through campaign sites or you know or or information about people who are running for seats in the state legislature or seats in county government and so forth uh, that's becoming a common theme people who are who are products of the emerge maryland program running for county council running for county commissioner running for delegate running for senate uh, we're seeing that all over may need to catch up with guam there though yeah, Guam. I'm, I'm sure Guam does a fantastic job on both fronts, and um, we'll have to we'll have to look into that a bit more. But uh, if you do have any questions, you can go onto our blog, just search podcast, and I will have a link to my email address there. You can submit them to us. We are always glad to get questions, and we have received quite a few. So please keep those coming, and we will get to them as we can. All right, that'll do it for this episode of the Conduit Street Podcast. Thank you all for listening. As always, if you enjoy the show, give us a like, subscribe. It helps our get our message out. For Michael Sanderson, Kevin Canale signing off. We hope you have a great day, and we'll talk to you next week.